Section 22 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15. William Rufus, 1087 to 1100, Part 1. In the separation of England from Normandy, according to the will of the conqueror, we have a clue to the reign of William Rufus and many a succeeding reign. The English welcomed that act as a restoration of their nationality and a pledge that England should no longer be a mere province of the Norman kingdom. Headed, therefore, by Lanfranc, who had imbibed thoroughly English sympathies, and Wolfston, Bishop of Worcester, the only national bishop who remained, they heartily supported the claims of William Rufus and welcomed his coronation at Winchester with delight. The Norman baronage, on the contrary, resented the separation of the two kingdoms, whereby their conquered possessions in England were separated from their hereditary property in Normandy, and their hopes of establishing their feudal independence were marred. Led by Odo of Bayeux and the Count of Mortain, both half-brothers of the conqueror, Roger of Montgomery and his son Robert of Belem, Eustace of Boulogne and Robert Bigard, they disputed the will of the conqueror and supported the claim of Robert. Rufus was thus forced to appeal to the English. He issued a proclamation in which he promised to refrain from arbitrary taxations, to give up all newly introduced abuses, and to let everyone sport on his own domain. Then, summoning all the English to join him on pain of being proclaimed nothing or worthless, he collected an army to which London and the Cinque Ports largely contributed. He reduced the castle of Rochester, which Odo had seized, bought off Robert Montgomery of Shrewsbury, and drove the rebels from the country. He then leagued himself with the discontented nobles of Normandy and invaded the duchy, until he was bought off by Robert, who consented to a treaty by which the survivor was to succeed to the other's dominions if either died without heirs. Rufus was thus established on the English throne entirely through the assistance of the English. They were ill-requited by the oppressive tyrant. As long as Lanfranc lived, he was restrained by his influence. But when Lanfranc died in 1089, his true character began to show itself. With much of the ability, decision, and good generalship of his father, he presented in other respects a complete contrast to him. William I, in spite of his many faults, had been at heart a religious and austere man. He had hated anarchy as dangerous to his realm, and licentiousness as the outward garb of anarchy. His son was utterly wanting in all religious principle, and shocked the morals even of that age by his boisterous and indecent profligacy. His abilities were prostituted to his selfish love of power, and instead of trying to prevent anarchy in his kingdom, he turned it to his own account. Wanting in the business-like qualities of his father, he entrusted all state matters to his minister, Ronald Flambar, who resembled the son, much as Lanfranc resembled the father. If Lanfranc was the best of the statesman ecclesiastics, Ranulf Flambar was the worst. Born of a low Norman family which had settled in the New Forest under Edward the Confessor, 
he became one of the clerks of the chancery, rapidly rose to favour, and became Bishop of Durham and Chief Minister. Now was seen the result of the great authority assumed by William over the Church, and how by a wicked king that power might be abused. And England experienced all the ills to avoid which the papal idea had been formed. Ronald Flambard was one of those churchmen who had become entirely secularized by the drudgery of the chancery business, and now in power he proceeded to let those secular ideas have full play. Without education, but with great natural powers and boundless fluency of tongue, coarse, impudent, and cunning, he was just the servant for the infamous Rufus. Abetted by the king, he ground down the people by fiscal oppression, and then deliberately set to work, not only to plunder, but to degrade and injure the church. He introduced a system of barefaced and daring venality which put up everything in church and state for sale and threatened to secularize the church itself. He started the theory that the vacant benefices belonged to the king, following the analogy of the temporal fiefs. For years after Longfranc's death, the See of Canterbury was kept vacant, and its revenues were dissipated in contributing to the dissolute tastes of the king, who declared that no one should be archbishop but himself. In this policy, the Red King was influenced by two motives. First, to free himself from the irksome restraint which an archbishop would be sure to place upon his gross and reckless profligacy, and secondly, because he knew that so long as the primacy was vacant, little opposition would be offered to him, and he would find it easy to wreck his will upon the rest of the possessions of the church. So steadily was this perverse policy maintained, that at the end of his reign, not only was the Archbishop of Canterbury in exile, but four bishops and eleven abbeys were without pastors. In the struggle, the bishops, jealous of the supremacy of Canterbury, showed singular apathy. Thus, in spite of the discontent of his people and the frequent petitions to him, one of which is peculiar, that the king would allow it to be enjoined, that the people should pray that the king's heart might be changed, he continued obstinate until a dangerous illness brought on a temporary fit of remorse as violent as is usual in ill-balanced minds. Then at last, giving way to a long-expressed desire of his country, he appointed Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1093. This great man was a Lombard like Lanfranc and of noble birth. He had been attracted to Beck by the fame of Lanfranc, and there, in spite of their very different characters, had become one of his dearest friends. To his predecessor he formed a complete contrast. Lanfranc was a man of the world, gifted with a practical, vigorous turn of mind. Anselm, on the contrary, deficient in worldly qualities, far surpassed his friend in originality of thought and subtlety of mind. He was the first great philosopher of Christian Europe, and in his works at once laid the basis of the future scholastic philosophy and went beyond it. Eager for the discovery of exact truth, he plunged fearlessly into the great questions of the proof of the existence of God, the relation of faith to reason, the meaning of the incarnation, subjects which after him were scarcely touched 
till the 15th and 16th centuries. His biographer and friend, Edmer, tells us of the astonishment caused by his attempts to unravel these, the darkest of the questions concerning the divine nature and our faith, which lay hid or covered by much obscurity in the divine scriptures. To this speculative turn of mind, Anselm added a childlike simplicity, a tenderness never surpassed. He loved to teach the young and to mold their minds when they were still like wax, ready to take the impression marked upon them. He loved to tend the sick, and he behaved, said his chronicler, so that all men loved him as their dear father. He so touched the hearts of the English that there was no count or countess or powerful person, but thought that they had lost much in the sight of God if it had not chanced to them to have done some service to him. So it was, he was to those in health a father, to the sick a mother. Even the stern conqueror William loved him better than any man, and wished to see him before any one else when he lay on his deathbed. Yet with all this tenderness he was austere, inexorably severe to his own faults and to those of others, and once convinced that any course was wrong, no power on earth could make him acquiesce in it. After Lanfranc had been removed to St. Stephen's at Caen, Anselm had become abbot of Beck, and now he was called to succeed him in the See of Canterbury. This he accepted very much against his will and only with the highest sense of duty upon William making three promises. One, to acknowledge Urban II Pope. Two, to restore all property belonging to the See of Canterbury. Three, to act on the advice and counsel of the Archbishop. The ills which might ensue from the subservience of the Church to the King had clearly appeared during the past few years, and must have furnished proof to Anselm of the dangers of the system. England, thereby, was in danger of again being cut off from Rome, and of having its church reduced to the condition of a mere slave to the king, who could despoil it of its revenues at will. It would have thus lost all independence, have become degraded, and losing all moral consistency of purpose, would have ceased to struggle against immorality and wickedness, or to influence the country for good. But Anselm scarcely needed such argument, for as if by poetic justice, Rufus could not have appointed a more resolute antagonist. Langfranc was the representative of the independence of the national church. Anselm was the supporter of the papal authority in its extremist pretensions. Deficient in the strong practical common sense which characterized his predecessor, he was, by his contemplative, imaginative character, better fitted to find rest in a great ideal, to which his philosophical spirit would give an existence and a reality which it did not in fact possess. Lanfranc was a thorough man of the world and saw the dangers of the papal scheme and how it failed in the working. Anselm was in no sort a man of the world, but a speculative recluse, a man of books and thought, and was carried away by the magnificence of the scheme which promised to complete the gradation of the hierarchy and give completeness and sanctity to the whole feudal society. The whole world might be considered as holding of one another and all eventually of the Pope, who himself as his vice-regent held of Christ. Thus all the world might be considered the vassals and servants of Christ, 
in theory as well as in fact. Was not this worth struggling for? Such were the thoughts of the man whom William Rufus had placed in the archiepiscopal chair. The result might have been easily foreseen. The archbishop at once claimed the fulfillment of the promises made when he accepted the primacy. He reproved the vices of the royal court, where the king with his renewed health had retaken to his old courses, and where the licentious ways of the courtiers, their effeminate dress, long hair and peaked shoes, did violence to Anselm's pious character. He attacked the king for keeping benefices vacant and refusing to restore the property alienated from the see of Canterbury. William, on his part, demanded a gift from his see. This Anselm not improperly refused because a simoniacal interpretation might be put upon the transaction, and it would inevitably lead to simony. The question of investiture next came forward. The grant of the pallium or ecclesiastical vestment symbolical of metropolitan authority had been claimed by the Pope since the 6th century, and Anselm now asked leave to go to Rome to obtain it. William refused with anger, declaring that he had not yet even accepted Urban II, who was struggling against an anti-Pope, and he claimed the right of acknowledging the Pope or no as he pleased. He even thought of deposing Anselm, and in this was supported by the bishops who showed strange servility. But the common sense of the barons checked him, and the matter was settled by a compromise. Urban, struggling as he was with the emperor Henry the Fourth on the same question, dared not press his claims on England, and when William acknowledged him allowed the pallium to be laid on the altar rails, whence Anselm took it and invested himself. But there could be no truce between archbishop and king, and finally when Rufus accused Anselm of sending his contingent improperly armed to the Welsh war, then going on, Anselm demanded leave to go to Rome to consult the Pope. William seized the opportunity of freeing himself from his archbishop. In 1097 he bade him go but never more return, and for the rest of the king's life the see of Canterbury was kept practically vacant and the revenues were appropriated by the king. Thus began that system of appeals to Rome which became so fruitful of future ills. Yet in all this, Anselm was so clearly fighting for what was right that our sympathies are entirely with him, and we are only too glad to forgive any slight temper or want of tact and courtesy which at times appear in him. He was not indeed fitted to battle with the world, with the overbearing insolence and noisy tyranny of a wanton despot like William Rufus. Edmer, his loving chronicler, most pathetically illustrates this. We were accustomed to lead him away from the assembly a little when he was tired, and restore him with a passage of scripture or a theological question. We asked him why he, such a vigorous man, became on such occasions so weak and faint-hearted. He replied that in this respect he was altogether a child. He likened himself to an owl, who was only well when it is with its young ones in its hole, but if it comes out among the crows and ravens, sees nothing but pecking beaks, and knows not which way to turn. Nor again are we inclined to be scrupulous, even on questions where principle was at stake, such as the question of the pallium, which affected the principle of the royal supremacy, or again Anselm's demand to go to Rome for advice, whereby he had broken, 
so his cruel oppressor asserted, William the Conqueror's customs. The question of principle we postpone to Henry I's reign when it comes forward more prominently. During the quarrel with Rufus, it is overborne by other questions. William Rufus was a violent, unscrupulous, and rapacious tyrant, the very man against whom the Pope had raised his scheme, and Anselm, after having most unwillingly accepted the archiepiscopal office, resolutely stood up for the good and right and just. Indeed, we go as far as to say that had all kings been like Rufus, all archbishops like Anselm, the papal authority could not have been pressed too strongly, or the ecclesiastical censures wielded too severely. The existence of such kings, of such brutality and selfishness and misrule, justifies the extremist of the papal claims. And lastly, it is important to remember that in this opposition of the Church to the irresponsible despotism of the Norman kings, the people first learnt their right and duty to resist an encroaching royal power, a lesson which they had else easily forgotten. During the quarrel with Anselm, the following events had happened. Malcolm Canmore, brought up in the court of Edward the Confessor, had overthrown the usurper Macbeth in 1054, through the aid of Seward of Northumbria. This English alliance was subsequently strengthened by his marriage with Margaret, sister of Edgar the Atheling. Accordingly, during William's reign, Malcolm had supported the national revolts against the conqueror, but had been defeated and forced to swear allegiance to William. He still, however, continued his English policy, and his court formed the chief refuge for the English when flying from Norman tyranny. Thus the English language and institutions spread to Scotland, and the latter became the basis of the Scotch constitution. Feudalism was established, the Lothians, anglicized by the recoil of the Norman invasion, were thoroughly civilized, and under Malcolm began to form the nucleus of the future Scottish kingdom. The discipline and ceremonial of the English church were introduced to improve the conditions of the Celtic church, which had become disorganized. English clergy were sent by Longfranc, and monasteries after the Norman model were established. In 1091, hostilities broke out once more between the two countries. The quarrel was at first compromised by Malcolm doing homage to William, but two years afterwards, Malcolm complained of William's conduct in fortifying Carlisle and settling English peasants from the south there. This he asserted to be a violation of the rights of the Scotch king, who claimed Cumberland as immediate lord. In 1093, on William's refusal to do him justice, Malcolm invaded the northern counties, but when he was besieging Annick, was surprised by Robert Mowbray, Earl of Northumberland, and slain. Margaret died soon after, and Scotland became the victim of a civil war. The Celtic population, who had been jealous of the English sympathies of Malcolm and the supremacy of Lothian, followed Donald Bean, the brother of Malcolm, who also gained the support of Magnus of Norway, while Malcolm's children led the English party. This war was not ended till the year 1097, when Edgar, the son of Margaret, was restored by Edgar the Atheling with the help of an English army lent him by William. Under this king, the anglicizing process became complete, and Scotland became at some little distance behind, 
the counterpart of England. Meanwhile, Rufus had been engaged in crushing another rebellion of his feudal nobles, headed by Mowbray, Earl of Northumberland, and in another war with Robert in 1094. On this occasion, he ordered a general levy of the militia to the coast, and then exacting ten shillings from each the journey money they had received from their counties, sent them home again. This extortion helped to fill his treasury, but the war was not carried on, and shortly afterwards Robert, eager to join the First Crusade, pledged Normandy to his brother for the sum of six thousand six hundred and sixty-six pounds. In the crusade which followed, 1095 to 1099, but few of William's subjects took part. It was not till the Second Crusade that England caught the enthusiasm of the continent and joined the rest of Europe in her great wars against the East. But many a Norman noble followed Robert to join their cousins of the South on the shores of Palestine, and the fortunes of the First Crusade are so closely bound up with the Norman name that it calls for a passing notice here. To understand the causes of the Crusades, we must remember the many conflicting emotions which stirred the heart of Europe, and which for once united in the Crusades, hurled Western Europe upon Asia. These causes, as far as the masses were concerned, were mainly two. One, a spirit of religious enthusiasm. This taking, as was natural in those days, an outward material form, had caused that great monastic revival of which we have before spoken, and had led many pilgrims along the weary and dangerous road to Palestine. The fascination of the Holy Land was irresistible. Men could not believe that there was not some real tangible virtue in the Holy Land itself. Would not the mere standing on the ground hallowed by the scenes of their Lord's life and death at once purge them of the pollution of their sins and make them clean? Thus, as we draw near to the era of the Crusades, there is hardly a king, a duke, a count, who had not been on a pilgrimage to the holy places, or had not died lamenting that death had cut him off ere his vow had been fulfilled. This was the spirit which was lashed to religious frenzy by the news that Jerusalem had fallen into the hands of the Turks in 1096, that the pilgrims were cruelly treated, and that the sepulchre of our Lord, hitherto respected even by Mohammedans, was treated with contempt. 2. There was that spirit of adventure, which, often degenerating into reckless license, alone explains the anarchy of the times. In the crusade, men saw for the first time the possibility of satisfying these strangely divergent passions, and hence in part the extraordinary enthusiasm which seized on Western Christendom. Hitherto these discordant impulses had conflicted, and had caused the strange contrasts marking the lives of the men of the earlier ages, cruelty and rapacity alternating with strange fits of terrified devotion, a life spent in wild license suddenly hid in the obscurity of a monastery, men expiating past misdeeds by frantic efforts of self-abasement. But among the leaders these simple motives were supplemented and sometimes obscured by others. The popes saw in the Crusades the only hope of a great coalition against the infidel foe. The Turkish hosts were threatening Europe, and if not checked in time, the struggle might have to be fought out in Europe itself. 
Europe, unconscious as she was of her unity, knew not how to coalesce. The Church alone formed a bond of union, and the only hope of united action lay in a religious war. So thought Gregory VII himself, and he had tried to preach a crusade before his death. To this view, in the case of Urban II, was added the imperative necessity of gaining the aid of Europe against his rival, the anti-pope, set up by Henry IV. And how could this be better done than by his enemy, the emperor, preaching a crusade, and thus assuming the leadership of the great Christian army, whose designs, it might be said, the emperor was thwarting by his own selfish aims. The commercial towns of Italy looked to these crusades in the hope of re-establishing their commerce with the East, which had been endangered by the fall of Jerusalem, at that time the market for Eastern goods. But lastly, the counts and feudal lords of Europe hoped to carve principalities for themselves out of the wealthy East. We have mentioned a few of the many causes which led to the crusades, because these alone explain the strange unanimity which for once seized Europe. For the rest, we must content ourselves with dwelling on the influence of the Normans upon the First Crusade. End of section 22